Recently, there's been a lot of noise and headlines about orthodox, unorthodox. The truth is, these controversies have been raging from the beginning of time. As soon as you talk about religion, about God, about faith, and especially in contrast to science, reason, we find all types of battles. We're going to tackle this from the root, not the symptoms. Please join me in this very important discussion. Is God orthodox? Religious fundamentalism and spirituality. Hi, Simon Jacobson here. I welcome you. A topic that's close to my heart and close to my soul is God Orthodox. Religious fundamentalism and spirituality. Recently, headlines, a lot of noise being made about Orthodox, unorthodox. In truth, the controversies around this topic go back from the beginning of time. But especially in the last few centuries, with the birth of the Enlightenment and the conflicts between religion and science, between faith and reason, between belief and modernity. So till this very day, there's a very tenuous and complex relationship between all these different schools of thought. And they manifest so many areas in so many areas of our lives. From issues around abortion, personal freedoms, morality, ethics. Can someone tell you what to do or not? Are we accountable to God? Is there a God? Separation of church and state. Freedom of religion. Some say freedom from religion. There isn't an area in life that this issue does not affect or address. So I want to talk about it in the root level. Not just a symptomatic level, but going to the root of the issue. Because the symptoms we all know, arguments, debates, that we usually don't go very far. So I want to begin with one of the more humorous events in my career. So I've been giving classes for many years, as you know. Well, there was a period of time that someone got access to public access television. So cable networks, with an agreement with the government, needs to give some time to the public to have access for free. High-level High quality, cutting edge technology, you go into these studios. So, someone arranged for me to give several classes. It was with a live audience, but it was also broadcast live and recorded. And uh, different, uh, we also invited questions from the audience. So, <laughs> it still brings a laugh to me when I think about it. 
So in the middle of my talk, I was talking about religion, about faith. One guy stands up and raises his hand. His, here's his question. He says, I just, I'm coming from the American Psychiatric Association's annual conference. And there was a debate there whether religion is actual a form of psychosis or neurosis, is an actual mental disease, or is it just delusional? That was the debate. He wants to know, what's your opinion, Rabbi Jacobson? <laughs> I burst out laughing, and I said, to me it sounds like the question, if they, someone asked me that question, I would respond, do you beat your wife with a chain or with a baseball bat? And everyone I remember was shocked. They said, how do you know he beats his wife? I said, exactly. You're beginning with a premise there's something wrong with religion. The question only, is it actual a medical condition? Or is it just uh, people uh, being foolish or naive or childish or delusional? Not necessarily a medical condition. In other words, you begin with a given, you're asking me which one to choose from. So I'm not suggesting, God forbid, it would be the same thing. Instead of asking someone, how do you know? Everyone's innocent. How do you know this person is hurting his wife altogether? You begin with a given. So the point came across, and I got a lot of feedback on that. Because this is one of the big issues. Whenever you talk about topics, especially these hot-button ones, the lightning rod ones, God, faith, religion. So there are people perhaps a little more neutral, but also it can actually create a ballistic argument. People go ballistic over it. As in this example, that religion can be real. The question is how unreal it is. So it reminds me of one of my favorite stories of Rabbi Yitzchak Bar an 18th century great Hasidic Rebbe, he once told a self-proclaimed atheist, the God you don't believe in, he said, I also don't believe in. Think about that. In other words, first let's define terms. You ever see a contract, a legal contract? The first thing is terms. Because if you don't have terms, we don't agree on the axiomatic terms that we're going to share, we'll never get anywhere. And there is no discussion without axioms. You can say, let's talk about the axioms and either prove them or try to establish why do you begin with that axiom. But everything has axioms and it's vital to spell them out because without that, you can't have a true conversation. You could say, I don't believe in God. I could say, I do believe in God. We can argue for hours, for days, for months, for years, for millennia. And then a simple question. What do you mean, what do you mean by God? Oh, you mean by God, a man with a long white beard in heaven that sits on a throne waiting to strike us with lightning when we misbehave? That's the God you don't believe in. You know something? I also don't believe in that God. By that definition, I'm also an atheist. Should we give perhaps another definition, we may come to terms. Or at least we understand what we're agreeing or not agreeing. This is the trap of semantics and of language that when not properly defined, we could end up arguing and finding out we're arguing about two different things, apples and oranges. Religion. For some people, religion is a beautiful experience, part of their family, community. For others, it's horrible. It was a nightmare. I experienced religious abuse, people say. Hypocrites, 
It's just another form of power and control. It wasn't more refinement. So the word religion, it all depends on how you experience it. Is there an objective statement to say religion is great or religion is terrible? Is there an objective statement to say orthodox is good, orthodox is bad? So it brings me yet to another story. I have many stories around this because you can imagine in my journeys and travels, so I've spoken on this topic, I stand up there with a yarmulke and a beard, here I am, looks like a Jewish rabbi. So of course I'm going to evoke all kinds of reactions and many of them very hostile reactions. So I've dealt with this many, many times because I'm not speaking only preaching to the converted. Actually, most of my audiences, most of the people listening are not converted at all. And I don't even prefer speaking to the convert. I'm not interested in that. Because that too, is a, is that too can be a trap. People just buy into something out of conformity. Remember, this conformity can go both ways. You can have a religion that people feel is religion and it's not religion at all. It works for you. Maybe it's just cultural, as we'll talk about shortly. So when we talk about this topic, here's another story. This was after my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, was published. So the publisher, William Morrow, sent me on a book tour. A book tour across the country. It started in 20 cities, then it ended up being in 90 cities. One of the places, I was a chosen author, a new author. So in Miami, in November, there's always the International Miami Book Fair. And they choose, they select several new authors. I was one of those that were featured, Toward a Meaningful Life. When there were larger audiences, you spoke in South Beach, Colony Theater on Lincoln Road is where I spoke. A beautiful theater, excellent acoustics. I remember it was really perfect for us, for a lecture, for a talk. The, the whole auditorium, the whole hall, the theater was packed. I spoke, I gave my presentation. I don't even remember my presentation, but I remember what happened afterwards. A woman stands up, again questions. She was like back in the left side on the second tier. Raises her hand. As I said, you could hear a pin drop. It was so, the acoustics were excellent. But when she spoke, it got even more quiet. Even quieter. And she says, I appreciate your words. However, I need to ask you a question. Before I purchase this book, Toward a Meaningful Life, I want to know what your opinion is on conservative Judaism. Not conservative versus liberal, but in the denominations, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist, Jewish Renewal. Because I hear people like you don't recognize Conservative Judaism, and I don't want to buy the book of a bigot. Those were her words. You know, some people would call that a heckler. I actually was welcomed her question, and it got so quiet. Everybody wanted to hear what I'm going to say. So I decided to take, a mo take advantage of the moment, and I paused for effect, and I said, yes, indeed, I don't recognize conservative Judaism. And I fell silent. And people began to hem and haw. You could sense the tension, the thickness in the air. And I waited, and I said, one second before you get violent and stone me, because that's what it felt like would happen next, let me add something. 
I also don't recognize Orthodox Judaism, nor, nor Conservadox, nor Reformadox, nor Jews for Jesus Dox, nor other, all the other doxes that have been created and will be created. Ultra-Orthodox. I don't recognize any of them. You know why? Because in the constitution of Judaism, called the Torah, there's no reference, no allusion made to any of these denominations. So where do they come from? These are man-made, corporate, bureaucratic names that may symbolize something positive, but they're not divine. Labels and names like this are for clothing, not for souls. And I turned to the woman and I said, let me ask you, was Moses, the great Moses of the Bible, was he orthodox, conservative, or reform? Because we sure want to follow what Moses did. And how about God? Is God orthodox, conservative, or reform? Is God even religious? Is God Jewish? So even without any sophisticated understanding of spirituality and soul, it's clear, even with a rudimentary understanding, that a soul is not born orthodox, conservative, or reform, just like a soul is not born square, circle, or triangle, or black, brown, yellow, green, or white. We're talking about ethereal dimensions that are not defined by man-made terms. This isn't McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King, or whatever other uh, companies out there. Let me just tell you what happened at the end of the story. So the woman continued. She says, very interesting answer. I appreciate it. But how do I know that's really true? Maybe you're just being cute, disingenuous. So, I, so at this point, I already feigned indignation. I said, listen, lady, life is filled with risks. You're going to have to get the book. And you'll see for yourself. And if you don't like it, we'll give you your money back. The point is, the story gave me such an such a, an anecdote that I've used thousands of times, and I'm using it now, to demonstrate exactly this point that I made earlier. The stereotypes, the myths around words. What does it exactly mean, orthodox, conservative reform? I understand the technical terms, but, is that, but, but at the end of the day, we're talking about souls, a soul connection. Once religion becomes a bureaucracy or defined by some corporate brand, it loses its very value. Who wants a connection to that? Now, I know some people feel... I remember telling the story once in a, in a conservative synagogue. And I told, shared the whole story. And a, a man got up after I finished and he said, very good point you made about conservative, orthodox reform, etc. What would you do about it? So I said, if it was up to me, I would eliminate all the denominations. I'd go back to Moses and let's do things without labels. Let's just try to be faithful to God, follow God's laws. And everyone does their best. But it's never going to happen, I said. Because everybody now is invested in their company, in their brand. And the fellow says to me, you're 100% right. I'm the rabbi in the synagogue. I have to deal with the board. Yeah, people are invested. I'm not here to criticize I'm here to make an observation that if you really want to understand true religion, 
it can be defined by people defining it as they see fit. With that, you can have arguments, and everybody has their argument. You have to go back to the spiritual definition. Or else we get stuck in the place what actually happened. As, mes- as much as people bemoan how science and open th- inquiry and thinking, free thinking, essentially trumped faith and religion. Some people say that's a terrible thing, but you have to look at what, what was religion saying and doing. We all know the story with Galileo, that the church forced him to recant on his ob- scientific observations because it didn't, wasn't, didn't jive with the church's teachings. Just as a symbol. We're not getting into now who's right, who's wrong. But as a symbol, what happened was that religion was projected, and by many, in a wrong way, in a corrupt way. Mind control. Anything threatening. It was about power and control. So, of course, people are going to rebel against it. As Nietzsche said, God is dead. The God that I was taught, the one I was educated with, was never alive in the first place. We just took some time to reveal that. But perhaps if we go back to the roots and define religion and God, not as people have defined it. In other words, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in because I reject it. We would have a very different take on it. Now, to be perfectly honest and transparent, I grew up in a, I don't like labels, so I'm not going to call it orthodox, but I did grow up in a Hasidic home, in a very observant home, following the Torah laws, given by God at Sinai. That was our given. However, I did not grow up in a dogmatic home, which changed everything for me. I had friends that did. So the same, we had the same religion, the same rituals. But it was not dogmatic. It was not imposed. My parents both well read. My father was a, was a journalist. Skepticism was a non-issue. You could open up anything. We didn't need to be, nobody needed to be, no one was ever silenced. But I was quite aware of other approaches. So it was not the religion per se. It wasn't the rituals. It was how it was presented. So the same thing can be presented. It's not what you say. It's how you say it and how you perform it. If it's imposed, if it's dogmatic, if it's fundamentalistic, if it's judgmental and condescending, of course, which healthy person is going to want to embrace that? And those that do, it's either out of fear or maybe a conformity, or that's their culture, and they're afraid to break out of it. So I'm the first to acknowledge, because I'm an insider, the problems that exist. But it's not the problem with the belief system. It's the problem with the people as they present it. That's vital in every system. It would like be any, anyone would dismiss any cultural rituals because it was misused or abused by someone. You don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. But unfortunately... For, for children, especially if you get the wrong impression, you do throw out the baby with the bathwater. How many people I know that have left observance or orthodoxy or whatever name you want to give it because they experience it in a very negative way? Who needs such a God? But the counter-argument is, as intelligent people, once, okay, I fully understand that I'm very sensitive to Someone's being hurt in the name of religion? Of course. Who wants to stay in being hurt and be abused? But there comes a point where you can learn to separate as an adult. Is it easy? No, because if you've been traumatized by religion, it's going to haunt you. 
it will pollute and toxifies your whole attitude to it. Like anything in life. You may be working in a very nice environment, but one person abuses you, that whole environment becomes polluted for you. And especially if they do it in the name of religion. So it's vital for us to reclaim, you know, losing my religion, very popular REM song. Like losing your innocence. But you really should come away with this. Maybe you find and rediscover something that is healthy. Because there's much beauty when you strip away the human corrupt element to it and you get to the core. Now, statistics show today, especially in the last half of the 20th century, and we're already in the 21st century, that spirituality and religion are seen as very two different realities. Most Americans, 90% or more of Americans in the Western world, world in the world, in the Western world, will say they have some form of God, faith, spirituality in their lives. Only around 40% identify with a religion. That's a pretty big discrepancy. And the answer is very obvious. Let's just do a uh, knee-jerk reaction type of test. You can do it in your own privacy of your own home. Wherever you may be. And here's how the test goes. I'm going to say a word. And what are the words that, that elicits when you hear the word? When you hear the word religion. So I'll start with the more innocent, innocuous, and so-called neutral words, or maybe even positive ones. Religion? Ritual, community, house of worship, clergy, holidays, family, tradition, heritage. These are, but then there's the negative words. Religion? You just watch any Woody Allen movie. Religion? Neurosis, anger, punitiveness, judgment, condescension, punishment. Those are the associated words that many people will associate because that's what they learned. You don't do this, God will punish you. Judgmentalism, as I mentioned. Someone's like that, we judge each other because I'm holier than thou. What, what, what words are elicited when you hear the word spirituality? Soulfulness, free-spirited, music, expansion, spreading your wings, warmth, refinement ethereal, elevation. You see what's going on? The truth is, true religion goes hand in hand with spirituality. As a matter of fact, to use the words from the mystics of the Zohar and other places, they say ritual without intention is like a body without a soul. In other words, ritual... It needs also the SBI that comes before the word ritual, spiritual, or else it's rendered lifeless. Does ritual have some value? Yes, some people, they love rituals, but rituals, if they don't have that vitality and the dynamic element, the number one, they're rendered irrelevant, and number two, if they're used in the wrong way, they actually become abusive. The second half of ritual is the spirit, the soul. What's the spirit in it? How does it touch me? How does it touch my heart? So in truth is, spirituality and religion are two parts of one whole. But most people don't see it that way. Many people will say the more spiritual the person, the less religious. 
the less didactic, the less dogmatic, which is another word, dogma I should have used. The more religious, the less spiritual. Now, there are religious people that are very refined and very fine people. I grew up around many of them. But some are not. And all you need is one to, to mess it up for everybody. But most of us are not even aware of this principle. Many people say, you know, you happen to be a spiritual person. But religion is not, does not necessitate spirituality. The answer is absolutely not correct. So let's go now to God. The God of most people's, in most people's understanding, the God in most people's minds, is not necessarily a beautiful God. It's a God that punishes. It's a God that allows the innocent to suffer. That allows tragedies to happen. God is not fair. Where is God when I need Him? Because God was never taught to us in a sophisticated, elegant, and spiritual way. It was taught us in a childish way. God's like this angry principle waiting to punish us when we misbehave. So of course, who needs a God like that? One of the classic Woody Allen scenes. So the open-minded, enlightened niece is sitting at her uncle's Seder table. Passover Seder table. And he's very angry Jew and very demanding and very punitive. So she like dismisses him and says to her uncle, she says, you know, uncle, if you had to choose between God and the truth, which one would you choose? Without missing a beat. Of course, God. God or the truth. Or another one. Guy comes to a rabbi and says, Rabbi, I hear that the Torah has the answers to all life's biggest questions. Yes. Will you teach it to me? Of course. How much will you charge me? How can I charge? God didn't charge Moses. Moses didn't charge the people. It's free. He's doubly impressed. He's going to get the answers to all the questions while also being free. But there's always a punchline, right? Always a string attached. They open up a Torah. It's in Hebrew. Rabbi, it's in Hebrew. So the rabbi says Hebrew lessons will be $20,000. This is the imagery that we have. Sometimes it's very negative. Sometimes it's neutral. But is it relevant? Is it something you're passionate and excited about? And if not, you're going to find that there's plenty of competition out there. How many rabbis tell me? Other clergy. Young people aren't coming anymore. And they blame it on the young. They blame it on technology. They blame it on the internet. I said, one second. In America, they say the customer is always right. Maybe something we're not doing right. If you want their attention, you have to gain. You have to gain it by presenting a dynamic, relevant, passionate spirituality that shows that you can't live without it. Not by preaching it and through fear and deterrent through punishment or reward but show people in their heart and soul that this is the single most important thing in your life, to find meaning, to find purpose, to find a connection to something higher than we are. Transcendence. I'm specifically using that word. Of course, we see what has happened. Music, there's no question music, which has captured the minds and hearts and souls of so many young people today. More than ever, in many ways, has filled that void. For many people, music is a prayer. And a rock concert is a service. And the concert halls are cathedrals. And a Grateful Dead concert was a pilgrimage. 
with incense and all. Because it touches the heart and soul. No surprise that music is called soul. So what we have now is, unfortunately, in very many cases, a cultural religion, a ritualistic one. I will even call it robotic, mechanical. So of course someone growing up with that and is not just a goody-goody conformist, and especially if they're hurt by it, is not going to stay long. And the only way you can keep them is through fear and punishment, through blacklisting, through blackmail. We need to reclaim, revisit the root of it all. The root of it all is the ultimate form of transcendence. It goes hand in hand with music. It goes hand in hand with soul. It goes hand in hand with transcendence. Every ritual is like playing a piano, playing an instrument. Yes, there are rules, but it creates magic. Imagine someone playing an instrument and you don't hear anything. No music coming. Looking at the gibberish of musical notes, what does it mean? It's like reading Hebrew prayers and you don't understand what it means. But then someone suddenly comes, reads those notes, plays the instrument, the piano, the violin, whatever instrument it may be. Magic, music. To reclaim the music, the soul, within all of these structures. I personally went through this in my life. I grew up with it, with the rituals. I saw some of the negative side, but thank God I was able to discover the music through the inner dimension, through the soul, through the mystical. So when you hear this whole controversy today about orthodox, unorthodox, ask yourself the question, is God orthodox? Is God unorthodox? These labels are human terms that sometimes have positive meanings, sometimes are positive experiences, but sometimes not. We need to strip it from all these man-made labels and reconnect to the core ideas. A story I tell very often captures it so well. In this Wednesday night class that I've been giving now for 40 years, goes back 40 years, back before the internet, back to the early 80s. So the core group in the beginning were people from the arts and entertainment industry. Artists, musicians, singers, writers. And some Jews, some non-Jews. Very spiritual, but not from the same sources where I gained my spirituality. It didn't come from any traditional place. Like some would say, their spirituality came from Zen Buddhism, LSD, etc. So we had tremendously engaging and fascinating interactions. They're extraordinary, sometimes deep into the night, to the wee morning, hours of the morning. Not everybody had a nine-to-five job, I should add. I learned so much, and I hope they did as well. But I remember leading the conversation, here I am. Yes, I wore a younger man's clothes, but I had to look with a beard and a yarmulke, a little more hair on my head. Blacker, not as white, not white at all. And I realized as a communicator and trying to be sensitive, we come from different places. They look at me. I project not a neutral image. I look like what some call, from what the New York Times may call, an orthodox or ultra-orthodox sect. 
they don't use cult, but I think because they, they can be sued for that. But sect became the, which of course, very dismissive. I remember once being interviewed by a Times reporter. And he said to me, so how do I title you? So I said, you can title me Simon Jacobson or Rabbi Simon Jacobson. What kind of rabbi? So I said, one second, if I wrote an article about you, what kind of journalist are you? Orthodox conservative reform journalist? Ultra-Orthodox Hasidic? He says, it's a good point, but they won't let me get away with that. They want to have a title, a label. So I said, I have no problem. I'll give you a label, but I want you to write that Rabbi Jacobson asked and said he doesn't want a label. So he did that. Just to show you. You know, like they say, the word fan comes from fanatic. But you never hear anybody say religious fans and sports fanatics. Talk about semantics. So anyway... I realized I was at a disadvantage because before I even open my mouth, I'm already projecting the image of whatever image they may be looking at. I may remind some people of a, an angry grandfather that schlepped them to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur against their will. Maybe of an irrelevant Hebrew school teacher that taught Hebrew lessons for bar, bar, bat mitzvah. Hollow Hebrew lessons that were irrelevant. As I remember hearing from many of them that my Judaism ended, my religion ended when I became Bar Mitzvah. Some people telling me they never even heard of the concept of soul. I may even remind some people of of warm memories of sitting at a Seder with grandparents and family. But clearly not neutral. So I tried an, an experiment. Listen to this experiment. Experiment was that I decided I will not use any terms or words that are loaded. No religious terms, no God, no Torah, nothing that has any religious undertones or overtones I created my own language instead of God I used the word higher reality the essence of it all if it was a particularly new age group I said something like undefined layers of unconscious energy instead of Torah I used the word blueprint or roadmap instead of mitzvahs connections Instead of Mashiach, Geula, Redemption, Messiah, Destination. And here I was waxing eloquent and pontificating about reaching, transcending our material existence to reach higher levels of reality to the unconscious, undefined states, following a blueprint, making connections between the inner and the outer until we create total fusion, seamless fusion between body and soul, between matter and spirit, between form and function, between the deterministic and the indeterministic, in one glorious symphony of inner and outer, of the spiritual and the material. And I went on week after week. I had everybody's attention. They were like, really, they were quite captivated, if I may say so myself. After a few weeks, a singer, a well-known singer, comes over to me and says, are you talking about God? I said, yes, but shh, don't spoil it for the others. And the experiment worked better than I ever expected. Without using language that immediately can elicit a reaction, a stereotype, a preconceived notion, we were able to speak. Same ideas. I didn't compromise on any of the ideas, but the language was one that everybody can commonly join together. And there was nothing that was prohibitive, nothing that 
elicited or re- any reactions. That's what words are like. On one hand, words are communication. You know, especially today, they say, we don't, you don't know, your, your beloved doesn't know what you're thinking. You have to express yourself. So today we speak and speak. You have to break the silence, maybe sometimes too much. But words also have the other side. A word that is innocuous, meaningless to me or, or innocent, can cause you to go ballistic because when your mother heard that word, who knows how she reacted. So we're living in a world of many, many stereotypes, misinformation, and just loaded words. That's how it is. Especially when it comes around religion and faith and God and so on. So it's critical to be cognizant of this. To neutralize the environment so at least we can have a conversation. Before we agree or disagree, what are we talking about? What are the meaning of the words that we're using? Imagine we did that well. I can tell you, most arguments would either disappear, or at least you know what you're arguing about. I'm not saying there can't be disagreements, but it's not a disagreement about words or about concepts that were completely not spelled out at all. Think about it. Share it with others. I'd love to hear your feedback on this. This is very close to my heart, as I said at the outset, because I deal with this on a daily basis. I can tell you 80% of the work in communication is not conveying an idea. It's dispelling a myth or a stereotype about the word, about an idea, about a concept. Yes, not exaggerating. Because once you can create the trust that we're talking about something that we both relate to. Let's talk about love. We all want love in our lives. And we get beyond any of our preconceived notions, even of how we look at each other. I look a certain way, you look a certain way, we come to conclusions even before we open our mouths. You would eliminate most disagreements. And even those that remain would be very, very productive ones. There's nothing wrong with two people, two minds thinking about or discussing something and having a very different approach. But at least it's an intelligent disagreement, and not based on just externals or complete myths. These are my thoughts in this context. And I believe that this approach can literally change the entire landscape of even how we as communicate to each other one-on-one, even as friends, as spouses, as parents and children, as siblings, how we communicate in our communities, and how definitely how we communicate with other communities and other races and other cultures and other religions and people of faith or would call themselves people of no faith. Even that very word, faith. Is there such a thing as a human being without any faith? They may not call it faith in God. They call it faith in technology, faith in science, faith in human ingenuity, faith in enlightened minds. But there's something more than just rational, cold, rational computerized data. We also have hearts and souls. That's also part of our reality. There's so much more that can be said. But I hope I did some justice to this conversation, especially now in our climate, conversations, the arguments about this. So I want to thank you for listening, and I would love to hear your feedback. If you like what you've heard, please share, subscribe. Pass it forward. Pay it forward, they say. But move it on, a ripple effect. This has been Simon Jacobson, Meaningful Life Center. Meaningfullife.com is our website where you can find much more of this approach of trying to get to the core of ideas that really transcend our differences. 
by cutting away from the external and surface level superficiality that can often create differences that are really not there. Meaningfullife.com. Thank you so much. Be blessed. Stay healthy. And please join the next programs. They're all there's a robust schedule at meaningfullife.com with many different options. Love to hear from you. Thank you. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at meaningfullife.com slash donate.